From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Hello, friends. Yes, I'm back. Good to be here. And after a bout of pneumonia, it's good to be anywhere, quite frankly. My wish for you, as always, is that you are safe, you are warm, and well-fed. Now, I'm not 100%. Some of you are probably thinking, well, I've thought about that for many years. Richard Serrett is not 100% (laughs) granted. Uh, But I'm not, I'm not referring to, uh, the, uh, my mental state, uh, uh, actually. I'm just, uh, my, my, my energy level is not quite there, and my voice is, uh, still a little on the thin side. Uh, so tonight for the next hour, I'll be, um, aided and abetted by my colleague, Victor Vigiani, the executive director of Zealand News Network, and he's, uh, here sort of as my insurance uh, policy should my voice fail. Uh, however, Victor is uh, always uh, in studio whenever we uh, delve into topics revolving around the UFO, t- uh, UFO ET issue. And uh, Victor, once again, thank you for being here. How are it's, you, my it's friend? Just fine. It's always a pleasure to be here, and it's good to come in the big chair. We're going to chat with uh, our guest, Gary Hesseltine, a former British uh, police officer, uh, about uh, the police and UFO sightings in just a minute. But first, uh, I couldn't ignore... I couldn't let the uh, the evening pass without uh, drawing to uh, the listeners' attention um, former President Bill Clinton's recent appearance, Jimmy Kimmel Show on uh, on uh, ABC, and uh, actually commend uh, Kimmel for asking Clinton about this very issue. Tim, can we play this clip? If I was president, and I won't be, let's be honest. <laughs> The first thing I would do after putting my hand on, on that Bible and taking that oath to serve the country is I, would, I wouldn't even probably finish the oath. I would run to the White House. I'd demand to see all the classified files on the UFOs because <laughs> I want to know. I'd want to know what has been going on. Did you do that? Sort of. Sort of. <laughs> yeah, we had... Uh... I think it was at the beginning of my second term, we had the anniversary of Roswell. You waited that long? I did. Wow. Well, I didn't. And then there's also Area 51. You remember there was a great sci-fi movie where there was an alien kept deep under the ground in Area 51? So first I had people go look at the records on Area 51 to make sure there was no alien down there. (laughs) And people thought that because everybody who works there has to stop about an hour away and put on special clothing and then drive in and out. And that's because a lot of our stealth technology is made there. We know that now. And, and, but there are no aliens there. So then I, when the Roswell thing came up, I knew we'd get, you know, gazillions of letters. So I had all the Roswell papers reviewed, everything. If you saw that there were aliens there, would you tell us? Yeah. You would. All right, there you go. Uh, Bill Clinton, sort of, and you can hear the chortles from the audience and ha, 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 gaffa, gaffa. But uh, the other uh, clip that we didn't get to, uh, Victor, was Mm -hmm. when Jimmy Kimmel was asking former President Clinton right. about something we've discussed on this show with uh, with uh, with people like Stephen Bassett and uh, um, uh, Grant, uh, Grant, Cameron. Grant Cameron from mm-hmm. uh, is uh, the, the Rockefeller Initiative. Right. The idea that Lawrence Rockefeller, sort of the black sheep of the Rockefeller family, was trying to press Bill and Hillary Clinton to disclose. And this was kept secret. And, of course, Grant Cameron's been on uh, talking about this. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, the debunkers were saying, that's what a bunch of nonsense. And Stephen Bassett, told, what a bunch of nonsense. No such thing as a Rockefeller initiative. 
for the first time, President Clinton has actually acknowledged that that is real. Your thoughts? This is a massive step forward, and I just uh, I played a little bit of it this afternoon um, before the show. Uh, just to listen, and it is, believe it or not, despite the guffaws and laughter in the background on the K- Jimmy Kimmel show, um, this is a very, very serious matter. With When the president, or former president of the United States, acknowledges that uh, Lawrence Rockefeller engaged him with uh, a series of letters, actually the total number of letters was about 53, not, not just from Rockefeller himself, but in the full exchange uh, between uh, Jack Gibbons and a number of other people in the White House and the Office of Science Technology, 53 separate letters, including ones from Carl Sagan and other dignitaries. Uh, Billy Graham was one of them. Uh, exhorting the president to relieve the uh, the truth embargo, to stop the secrecy. It's time, in one of his, uh, the letters that, uh, that Rockefeller wrote, Mr. President, it's time for us to end the secrecy. You know that we are, we, are, we are keeping secrets about the UFO issue. And these letters went back and forth, and it was a real initiative. And John Podesta, after his term in, uh, the, uh, in the White House as Chief of Staff, came forward at the Washington Press Club and said exactly the same thing. It's time to end the secrecy on this. So uh, what Clinton is doing here, he's opening the door for the media to say, listen, there's a big hint here. Pick up on this, folks. Yeah, and do it on a comedy show so yeah. it seems rather... Uh, benign. Just slide it right in. So we're, we're moving ahead <laughs> slowly. Well, listen, here's someone else who has worked tirelessly to uh, to end the UFO ET truth embargo. Gary Heseltine served as a British police detective with over 22 years service. Uh, and then back in 2002, he founded the Police Reporting UFO Sightings Database, which caters um, basically for serving and retired British police UFO sighting reports. In 10 years of research, he's now, well, 12 years of research, he's now amassed, uh, well, nearly 500 cases involving over 900 British police officers. He was the former editor of the online publication UFOMonthly.com, as well as the former co-editor of UFO Data Magazine in Washington, D.C. in 2010. He was awarded the Disclosure Award by Stephen Bassett's Paradigm Research Group, and for the last year, he's been working closely with uh, Colonel Charles Holt, uh, putting a, a film together on the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident. Gary Hesseltine, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? I'm fine. Uh, I'm glad to see that you're on the mend. Uh, thank you, and I appreciate you getting up uh, very early, uh, or maybe you, didn't, you never went to bed, but it must be, what, 4 or 5 in the morning in the U.K.? Yeah, it's 5 a.m. in the morning, and uh, no problem at all. It's always a pleasure. All right, and uh, say hello to my uh, my colleague, uh, who, who, who I, I know you are aware of, and that's uh, Victor Vigiani. Good morning, Victor. Hello, Gary. I had a pleasure of uh, watching and listening to you at the hearings back in May. I was uh, just taking taking in everything that you said. Uh, a tremendous, tremendous uh, affront that you gave us to uh, to consider. Excellent testimony. Gary, Thank you very much. Uh, Gary, I met you back in 2010 in Washington at that very uh, ex-conference, and uh, we sat down for a, a television interview. I don't know if you recall, but um, you revealed during that interview to me, and, and, and I'm sure I know it's a story that you've told many times, but I think my listeners would be would be fascinated to hear. I mean, how before you even became a police officer, your experience with a craft. Uh, which to me is, is, was one of the, and the way that you told it to me at the time, one of the most remarkable stories from an experiencer that I've ever heard. Could you give us sort of the Reader's Digest version? Yeah, no problem. My, uh, 
history of this subject really begins with a childhood sighting at the age of 15 in my hometown of Scunthorpe in uh, Lincolnshire in England. And uh, at the time it was uh, a balmy summer's uh, night, all the stars were out, which you don't get many of these kind of nights in England due to the you know poor weather that we generally have but it was all the stars were out not a cloud in the sky lovely lovely evening and i was walking my then girlfriend home called dawn uh, and uh, we were walking along a long narrow footpath that uh, essentially dissected my as you would call high school uh, fields on the left and on the right side were some garden allotments, um, a large garden area. And so essentially, we were in the middle of the darkest part of the pathway. And in the distance, we could see housing that was at the end of the uh, path, uh, which was all lights, uh, you know, all the lights were on. It was about 8, 9 p.m. in the evening. Uh, and as we got to about halfway down along this footpath, we suddenly noticed that there was a bright white light at about a 60-degree angle moving from our right to left um, up into the sky ahead of us. Now, we watched it. There was no distinct shape. It was just a bright white light, but it was much bigger than the uh, background of stars. And the puzzling thing was that there was absolutely no noise. It was very slowly moving, kind of gliding. And if you can imagine that if you're on a forward uh, direction and the path is moving ahead of you, then this object passed us from right to left across our path. But as soon as the object passed by us, all the housing lights, the electricity uh, in the distance was cut off, akin to a power cut, uh, plunging the distant view into darkness. Now, I'm Immediately and rightly or wrongly, my girlfriend uh, associated the light with causing the power cuts and she became visibly frightened. We watched pretty much in awe as this object was moving further away to our left, but very slowly, when there was a second power cut behind the area of the object's flight path. So the area is absolutely plunged into darkness. Now, the object was generally heading very slowly in the direction of where I lived. At the time, I was walking my then-girlfriend home. Now, I had my bicycle with me, so I said, get on the bike, onto the crossbar, and I will, will uh, ride you back to your house. So two of us on the bike, a Lincolnshire term called Crogering, two of us on the bike, rode down the, the, the end of the alleyway, and uh, sure enough, her house was around a couple of corners, in total darkness because of the power cup I dropped her off, literally just dropped her off and then raced like mad along the same alleyway trying to take a shortcut uh, to try to catch up with the light now because the angle that it was moving I was able to do this and eventually I get onto a long road called Grange Lane South and I have this distinct memory of, of going from total darkness into where the electricity was on effectively from one house to the next on this corner and uh, going from darkness uh, from darkness into where the light was still on. And as I did so, I glanced over my right shoulder to see that I'd got ahead of the light by taking this shortcut and by racing like man, 
and the object was just behind me. So I'd gone into the electricity area. I ran round two corners, dropped my bike outside my house, rushed in to the living room to see my parents who were having a cup of tea, supper time. And uh, I said, come outside. I think there's going to be a power cut caused by this strange light. And they just looked at me bemused, as you would. Didn't get up. So I raced through the hall, through the kitchen, through the back door, into the backyard, turned around to look back at my semi-detached house, just in time to, to see the object move over my rooftop. I put my arm up in the garden, straight above my head, like you're saying, yes, sir, uh, yeah, I'll answer that question. And I put my hand up, and no sooner did that object pass by my arm, past the 90 degrees, as it were, and the whole area behind the flight path was plunged into darkness, including my house, the entire area was plunged into darkness. Now, how could I predict a power cut? And it was from that time that I realised that that object must have, from second, second by moving to a second geographical position, must have interacted with the power grid. Gary, we'll uh, take a time out, we'll come back, and we'll talk about the police reporting UFO sightings database, which you created back in 2002, and uh, get into a discussion about how police handle UFO sightings on either side of the pond. Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Network in studio, Gary Hesseltine on the phone from the UK, here on The Conspiracy Show, Don't Go Away with some amazing stories that you will not hear in the mainstream media. But let's get back to the police and UFO sightings. Victor, take it away. As a police officer, Gary, uh, in the context of the very detailed story you just told, how old were you at the time, approximately? Fifteen. Okay, so you're 15 15 years years old. old. Okay, you're 15 years old. You went through some schooling after, and you became a police officer eventually, uh, obviously. Um, The the question that I have in mind right now is, in my career as an elementary school principal, I dealt with the police a lot. Uh, in terms of you know, parents and students and just engage the, uh, the, the police department in many, many different ways. And they've always impressed me as very cut and dry, just give me the facts kind of individuals. They don't really have too much room for obfuscation and, and fudging the facts. Uh, when you became a police officer, knowing what you knew then and then maybe integrating some of the knowledge that you may have had in the interim, uh, how, how could you stay in the police service for so long without literally exploding and wanting to do more of this? The real answer is that for the first six years of my service, I joined the police in 1989. I sort of kept uh, my UFO background uh, to myself, Mm -hmm. but it was in around 1995 when I came across a magazine called UFO Magazine, which was a British publication at that time, um, which kind of reignited my interest in the subject. And over the next couple of years, I kind of caught up on the latest books, etc. After really being away from it for a long time, but it reignited my interest. And the more I read, the more I began to feel a sense of frustration that all the uh, years that had passed by, nothing had really changed. I was still reading about pilots chasing UFOs, and yet it was still being ridiculed in the media. So a sense of frustration grew, and that culminated the creation of the database in 2001. The way that it moved forward to the database actually launching publicly was uh, I approached the editor of that magazine and uh, said, look, I've got this idea for a police database. Would you allow me to write an article in your magazine just to let it get it off the ground? And he was uh, very agreeable to that idea. 
simply because he looked at the subject in a no-nonsense scientific way and he was, and he obviously thought that police officers added a degree of credibility to the subject. So he was all keen for that. So in January 2002, I launched the database. Initially, I got uh, all ribbing off my colleagues, you know, my inspectors and alien, take me to your leader and all those kind of jokes. And that's uh, what I absolutely thought would happen. But you're right that police officers generally do not put their head above the parapet. They are non-nonsense unless something's happened. So when you do get police officers going on the record, then believe me, uh, they're not lying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, once the database launched, there was a constant stream of uh, officers, generally retired officers, approaching me. They'd got the pension. They didn't feel uh, in, uh, under any threat of it, as it were. And they began to reveal these stories to me, which were absolutely incredible. And I realized that it was just the tip of an, uh, an iceberg. And, and moving it on, that as the number of cases increased over many years the more I began to get pressure from within the police, uh, really uh, my movements, in a sense, and what I was saying on radio shows like this was being monitored, uh, and uh, that culminated in uh, 2010 when I actually got a 12-month written warning from the police just because I wrote a private letter to several chief constables when the Ministry of Defence suddenly decided to close its UFO reporting facility in uh, December 2009. Uh, And that was quite a worrying time because your pension that you worked for all these years uh, was on the line and ended up getting a 12-month rent warning. It was was quite a a worrying time. And that was one of the reasons why I decided to retire. And in retirement, I chose to launch Mm -hmm. an online magazine called UFO Truth Magazine. And that's what I do now. I'm the editor of an online magazine that goes worldwide. How did you interpret that warning? To me, uh, that that would have meant that I'm onto something here and would have motivated me even more to continue along that that, that path. Did did you interpret it that way, that if the police are going to warn me in this way, there must be something? Here. It was always obvious to me that there was a real reality behind these stories. One of the key things that comes out from 12 years of research is uh, that seven, over 70% of the cases that are on the database, that's 70% of over 450 cases, uh, so what, 350 plus, are multiple police witness cases. Now, that's an impressive, impressive statistic on its own. I'm not a big lover of statistics but that is an impressive statistic to me because this again strikes at the heart of the skeptics will say it's just a blurry eyed policeman tired in the middle of the night who's got confused misidentification when you're getting officers um, two four six eight ten in one case 24 police officers over six counties of britain following objects in the sky then you're pretty sure that you're looking at something very strange gary i'd, I'd be curious to know how the report of these sightings differs from sort of the official paperwork that the police file when they see something and how they are reporting it on your database. Well, what you've got to realize is that the the database caters for two specific areas, on-duty sightings and off-duty sightings. And the reason why I do the two is if you're on-duty, then you're in an official capacity and you're using your all your senses to report factually, as it were, write it down in your pocketbook as if you were going to present evidence in court. But I also realised that if a policeman is off duty, 
in a sense, the policeman who's taken an oath to the Queen, as in, in the UK, you're never off duty, so many of police officers get in, involved, they're out, they're out with a wife and kids, and they see a burglar, and they end up getting involved. So you're never essentially off duty. So in the off-duty capacity, I realise that it's the same officer using his same senses and would record things in exactly the same way, so they're on the database. Probably 85% of the cases are on-duty incidents, but there's a significant 15% who are off-duty, often corroborated by wife and, and uh, members of the family. But for me, it's the same officer using the same skills, so it's, it's a valid thing. Now, in terms of uh, the police sightings, what you've got to understand is most, of, uh, most police forces in England and Wales, there are 43 separate county police forces in England and Wales, had pretty much the same reporting procedure, and that was a, essentially fill in a simple pro forma if somebody reports a sighting and send off, fax off, telex it off, historically, off to the Ministry of Defence to a, a specific UFO desk. And that operated for over 50 years, and uh, it, what you've got to be realise is that this wasn't a really well-organised thing. When police officers historically uh, got a phone call, years ago, most poli- there weren't the big control rooms now that cater for you know, large regions of, uh, of the counties and areas of England. There were just, most police stations had their own uh, radio transmitter that would operate over a, a relatively small area. So often Officers would often get a phone call. Now, if the officer was open to the idea of UFOs and took it seriously, uh, then he'd listen to the caller and write some notes down and and, and send off the telex to uh, the Ministry of Defence. But it was pure luck. If an officer picked up the phone and he thought it was a load of rubbish, then he'd probably laugh at the person on the other end of the line who may well have been very well upset because they'd witnessed something profoundly strange and just put the phone down on them. That's how abstract it was. So this was not a well-organized thing in the UK at all. Right. Could you give us an example of a really outstanding case that might have been put forward that that you are aware of in the database that that really kind of uh, shines for you? There's been many. Uh, Basically, two uniformed police officers were in a marked police vehicle, and it's the early hours, and they saw what could only be described as a huge black triangular craft so this is not light in the sky this is structure it's a huge black triangular object making no noise just above treetop level but here's the staggering thing it was the size of three football fields hovering in silence above treetop level and i said how do you know it was the size of three football fields. This is because when we saw it, it was above the size, it was above three football fields. So we've got a good idea on its size. Both officers corroborated the site. They watched the object for uh, several minutes, I think six or seven minutes, and then it suddenly shoots off onto the horizon in the blink of an eye, instant acceleration, no noise, and stops on the horizon and then disappears. What motivation is there for an officer to do that? Are they trying to become rich and famous? Because you don't get rich and famous in the UFO field. Do you make loads of money in the UFO field? No, you don't. Do you risk credibility? Yes, you do. What do police officers not want to lose is credibility in the eyes of their colleagues. So when an officer does that kind of sighting, then we should be sitting up and listening. 
if you were a skeptic on its own, you'd go, well, I still can't believe it. It, 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 it. There's got to be some rational explanation. However, there's many sightings on the database of objects. Another case from 1979, the officer approached me, and basically there's three officers packed up at about three in the morning in a rural area of the countryside. There's no ambient street lighting anywhere around. It is absolutely countryside, total darkness. Then as they're talking to each other, in the distance, they see a bright flash low on the horizon and they, they look, but it's so brief that they don't really pay any attention. Five minutes later, suddenly, and the object doesn't arrive in the sense of a conventional object, it doesn't come left, it doesn't come right, it's like a light bulb turning on and suddenly an object that they described as the width of the football field shining a beam down across the terrain at about an altitude of 500 feet the width of the football field, scanning as if scanning the terrain, total silence, and here's the crazy thing, that the smaller objects flying around the outside of the bigger object, kind of a mothership scenario. They watch in absolute amazement for about five minutes when suddenly it doesn't go left, it doesn't go right, it just blinks off. Disappears. And what an incredible story. The other thing I, I want to talk about is the, the, the more, um, I guess we can get to the politics of all of this, but you're also heavily involved uh, with the Rendlesham Forest incident, and I know you're, you're preparing a documentary movie on this. If I could, uh, let me just, uh, for yeah. those not familiar with Rendlesham, sure. if, Gary, you could just give us a, a quick thumbnail sketch of what happened on that joint U.S.-British uh, base back uh, Christmas 1980. Uh, we're coming up on a break here, so let's just give us the, 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 the bare-bone details, and then when we come back, Victor, we'll pick up on, on, on that. Sure thing. Okay, the, the Americans would probably know it as the Bentwaters incident. In the UK, it's known as Rendlesham Forest, and essentially between the December 26th and the 28th, over a three-day period, there were three successive nights of UFO activity at or near the base. At a base that now we suspect had nuclear missiles. Uh, listen, we'll take a time out, come back on the other side. A retired British police officer, ufologist Gary Hesseltine on the line from England and in studio Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network as we discuss the police and UFO sightings. Stay with us. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Uh, welcome back, and uh, a few moments remain with Gary Hesseltine as we discuss uh, police sightings of UFOs. Uh, and just ahead of our media scientist friend Nelson Thal and his latest installment of State PSYOPs. We'll talk about the latest on um, Malaysian Airline Flight 370 and also dial back to uh, just over a year ago on the uh, the Boston Marathon uh, bombing. Some uh, in- interesting information on that. The possibility of a volcanic eruption at Yellowstone. Uh, scientists finding a, uh, a, a treatment to kill every kind of cancer and much more. All coming up, State PSYOPs, Nelson Thal. All right, Victor Vigiani, you are going to ask Gary Hesseltine about the infamous Rendlesham Forest UFO incident. Right, with, with the number of uh, UFO sightings that were around that 
uh, over the past uh, over the two days that we're involved. Um, I couldn't help it, but uh, listen to your testimony, Gary, uh, Gary at the citizen hearings, uh, both when I was there and this afternoon. And basically, uh, you outlined two facts. First of all, that you were on uh, two similar um, uh, military bases that, that were they were nuclear bases, uh, as you outlined. And uh, in the, in your um, in your testimony at the citizen hearings, you said, uh, I'm going to quote right from you what you say. You said, let's cut the crap. This was a nuclear um, uh, incident or issue. And uh, <laughs> you, you said that. I'm not going to, you know. Um, and, and it was a very powerful statement because, um, you know, when you say let's cut the crap, I, I think what you're what you're saying is let's really deal with this issue um, as to what it means authentically. And one of the issues surrounding, not just the UFO issue, is the amount of pressure placed on military security officers to keep their mouths shut. Um, first of all, comment on on the the nuclear aspects of of all of this, and then if you could give us some insight as to the kind of pressure that are placed on military officers to keep their mouths shut. Right. Uh, first and foremost, the uh, the I served in the Royal Air Force Police uh, for six years between 1983 and 1989, so just before I joined the Men Police. And I worked on two nuclear bases, uh, protecting nuclear weapons um, in, in in silos or uh, bunkers uh, that uh, were identical to the uh, the site at Bentwaters, RAF Bentwaters, which is where the uh, American case took place in December 1980. So I had, I had kind of like a unique background, uh, and you can tell it's nuclear. The, the, I've got a photograph of the base at La- RAF Labrick in what was then West Germany, where I worked, and it's an identical layout to the hot row at uh, RAF Bentwaters, which is uh, a nuclear hot row. And... Uh, what you've got to understand is that official people like Colonel Charles Holt are not going to officially say uh, there was nuclear weapons for the simple reason is that they, they, they will tend to say, oh, I can neither confirm or deny. Mm-hmm. But it was nuclear weapons, and you can tell that on the number of officers that were involved. At Bentwaters, there were 38 officers guarding in and around that facility. On a normal bomb dump and a normal uh, facility, conventional weapons, it would two of but there were 38 on on mobile patrols walking around inside the towers etc etc so you can tell very straightforward it's nuclear weapons it's an identical layout to the RAF Larbrook uh, weapon storage area uh, so this is nuclear weapons uh, and what's more important is I got I went up to the tower in 2007 with Colonel Holt, and he did a private video for me which you can go to uh, uh, the UFO Truth uh, um, online YouTube page and you'll see that clip where he filled where we're at the top of the tower and I asked mm-hmm. him about nuclear weapons and he said that after he'd had his sightings while he's out with his men he sees the UFO shining a beam down in the direction of the Bentwaters uh, weapon storage area he can't say for certain because he's away from it looking back through terrain but he changes his radio frequency and on that video clip he says I changed the radio frequency and tuned into the tower, the weapon storage area tower and sure enough I could hear that the, the guy in the tower saying there are beams being shone down into the nuclear bunkers. Now that is an incredibly important admission for him to make to me, uh, confirming that there were beams being sent down into the nuclear storage bunkers. This is an incredible event. How often do you get beams being shone down into a nuclear bunker by a UFO that is directly overhead? Now, you imagine that if you're uh, one of those uh, 
soldiers uh, in there guarding the weapons, you must have been absolutely terrified. What's going on? Do you shoot at the thing? What do you do in that scenario? Uh, so, so that's the kind of scenario. But don't forget that over three successive nights between December the 26th and December the 28th, there was repeated UFO activity. Uh, and even if you strip away all the personalities, you are still left with an incredible event. And Holt wrote the Holt Memorandum, which was just three pages. Mm-hmm. It was never meant to be a full report. He brought it to the MOD, and it was just a taster for what he thought would be a full investigation. And the first one said, uh, on the first paragraph, said that it was a landing on the first night. Uh, and uh, of a triangular object. The second paragraph said that there was trace evidence left by that uh, craft coming down. And then the third night, he says, oh, I saw multiple UFOs myself. What, now, what, how often do you get a, a high-ranking of officer? Of course, yeah, yeah. Now, in terms, in terms of the, uh, the, the efforts for secrecy, well, this is a kind of case that could blow the lid on UFOs once and for all. So straight away, a cover-up came in there and, and several of the men uh, have, have independently said that they were interrogated, sometimes given drugs, sodium pentothal, yeah. sodium amethol, uh, and, and they basically were grilled to say, no, you saw a lighthouse, you saw this, it's, it's not UFOs, don't say anything. So in certain cases that are excellent cases uh, across many areas of the world, uh, power is exerted, and I would have to say that it's usually America putting the most pressure on. Uh, uh, they usually have their fingers into most decent UFO cases, and the thing is, you don't say anything. Now, if you're in the military and you've taken an oath to defend your country, it's a big thing. So people, if they're told to stay quiet under the threat of things happening to their family, they will stay quiet. Of course. Gary, listen, fascinating. Uh, we'll have to have you on again. Uh, and discuss further. We've merely scratched the surface. Uh, again, Absolutely. the, 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 web, the website for the uh, the website for the police database. Can you give well, us that? What I, what I want to say is the website for the magazine that I'm doing now, because that features most of the top researchers in the world, it please, includes yes. police science, uh, is uh, www.ufotruthmagazine.co.uk, and the police database is www.proofosplease. Database.co.uk. I'll send you any links and banners, etc., so you can put them out for your readers. All right, they're on the website. Always. If they click on Gary Hesseltine, it'll take you to the Proofos website. Thank you for this, my friend. Thank you very much. Anytime. All right. When we come back, State PsyOps with Nelson Thal. Don't go away. You have meddled with the primal forces of nature, Mr. Beale, and I won't have it! You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There are no Russians. There are no Arabs. There are no third worlds. There is no West. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and immane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows 
fight was fixed. The poor stay poor, the rich get rich. That's how it goes. Everybody knows. All right, welcome back to the Conspiracy Show, and uh, of course, we come back in with the uh, that great um, uh, scene from Network. Now, here is our own. Mad prophet of the airwaves, our very own Howard Beale, Nelson Thal, media scientist, with another installment of State PsyOps. How are you, Nelson? Very good. Good to have you back. I hope your lungs are getting better. <laughs> great. It's great to be back. Listen, uh, it's got, we have kind of a backlog because uh, with my illness and so forth, it's been a while since we've had you on. And I wanted to get to right to the – you have a number of uh, stories on the, uh, the, 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 uh, the Twitter page, which is State PsyOps. Uh, and they have to do, of course, with the missing Malaysian Flight 370. One of them, um, a whistleblower, um, saying that, again, confirming what some of others have said, that the, the Malaysian airliner's passengers were taken hostage. Where is this story coming from, Nelson? Rich, you know it's after midnight, as we always say, and the owners of the system are asleep, so we can come out and play here. But uh, we live in an age of gigantic pictorial illusionism and journalistic exaggeration of concealment. And uh, it's just been bombarding the society with it, as I know you and I have discussed over the years. Okay, so again, this whistleblower, uh, a diplomatic pouch courier, reporting yeah, was- that Malaysian pa- passengers were taken hostage. What can you tell right. us about that? I-, I think the background on this, Rich, we should talk about is... Um, you know, it was you and I who answered the New York Times ad from Admiral Moore and Benton Parton, and I interviewed uh, the Admiral of the Joint Chiefs of Staff on the ad that he took in the New York Times, which CBS News it, it totally ignored. And I think this was regarding at, TWA 800, TWA right, 800. So, right. right. So the top people in the Pentagon told us that TWA 800, and they put a big ad in the New York Times. Everybody could read it in 89. They said that the government's official story was a lie, that it wasn't a spark in the fuel tank. It was a missile. And he said the National Transportation Safety Board altered the forensics and covered it up. So it were heavy charges, and this is the top guy in the Pentagon said that this is going on. Now, so we've been studying KAL 007 aircraft crash, the Dorothy Hunt uh, crash in Chicago, and you start to see a pattern in all of them as to how they run these operations. And Sherman Skolnick, the great American judge buster who Time magazine wrote about, wrote the history of airplane, American airplane sabotage. And this Malaysian flight doesn't have any of the fingerprints of being a sabotage like shot down with a missile. Uh, this uh, uh, sources say that there's no doubt that this is a hostage taking. Well, further to that, another story that you have up on the state psyops page, and people can click on if they go to uh, tonight's show uh, and, and scroll down to state psyops. They can click there on the in red bold letters. It says to read full articles. Click here. That'll take you to the Twitter page, which is state psyops. The other right. story that you have there has to do with further to this hostage type scenario has yeah. to do with a report that Queen Elizabeth II has received a ransom request for those same Malaysian passengers. Now, where is this story coming from? Well, basically, it's coming from the board of directors of the Malaysian Airlines because the, you must remember that these planes were all serviced always by 
BOAC, that in the 50s, the British Overseas Airways Corporation, which eventually became, was the grandfather to British Airways. They did all the maintenance on the plane, so they had access to this plane. And so um, you start to follow the money, and, and that's what we do, Rich. We follow the money, as Ned Beatty said, and this is where the, uh, the people behind the scenes the the Leo Wantas, the ambassadors. There's retired ambassadors that feed us information. There's retired diplomatic pouch couriers who become important sources in today's mediated world. And uh, there's a lot of people who are retired who want to uh, talk about the, what's really going on behind the scenes, as you know. So what else do we know? Do we know anything uh, other than that, except that uh, a whistleblower diplomatic pouch courier is saying that it, that he has it on good authority, that the, the passengers were taken hostage, and that the Queen herself has received a ransom note? Is, do we know anything more? Yeah, there's a lot that's being reported, and people sh- – and I think that because – we're on only for 15 minutes and covering vast amounts of different operations and black operations going on that ultimately the beauty of the Twitter site is people can hear sort of a summation from us and then they can go and read about it on the, on the net. Okay. Let's uh, but, jump, jump but, ahead. But we, okay. Go but ahead. We can, we can get on to a bit later. We can get more into what is going on and what's being reported is going on and, uh, as to why these people were taken hostage and, uh, and who's trying to benefit from it. Key bono is always the question that Sherman Skolnick pointed people to look at. Follow the money and key bono. Who benefits here? Nelson Thal, state psyops here on the conspiracy show. Now let's dial back to, um, uh, the Boston Marathon. On uh, last year, and of course we had the uh, the horrible uh, bombing, uh, and you're reporting on uh, state psyops that the FBI apparently asked Samarev, uh, the um, the accused in this case, to work as an informant before the Boston bombing, and this is what his defense is claiming. That's right, and and you know, Rich, also remember that. Um, Let's not forget that what our national leaders say publicly to other national leaders, um, retired uh, couriers have pointed out, that that's not necessarily what they say public is not necessarily what they say to each other privately by handwritten notes given to couriers to deliver to the leaders of, of, the, uh, of another nation around the world. Okay, so this is important for us to recognize what's going on behind the scenes when you watch the, I mean, this week CNN has flooded the conscious minds of Americans with a psychological maneuvering of people's minds and senses. It's a heavy psyops that they've been involved in. And you have, then of course, the Malaysian airliner begs the question, what a role and did these people play in this operation that now they have to absolutely bombard the conscious level mind and do a heavy military psyops on the way people think and feel at this time. Uh, people like other countries that don't need to saturate their people's minds with what this story is about, they are obviously not guilty. Okay, but the, the Tsimeyev case in the Boston Marathon bombing, his defense yes. lawyer is claiming that, that, that the FBI asked him to be an informant. So what is the inference here that Tsimeyev uh, basically got caught up in a sting operation or, or he, 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 he got, he, basically he's a patsy. Is that the, is that what they're saying? Double agent, triple agent, just like Oswald was an FBI informant and he had a CIA, he's a CIA agent as well. 
All right, uh, let's move along to uh, to Yellowstone. Of course, there's been a, a flood of stories about uh, these, you know, wild animals that apparently are fleeing Yellowstone Park, and has led some people to conclude that uh, you know the super volcano beneath Yellowstone is ready to blow because animals have some sort of instinctual, you know, uh, they just know that something's something's wrong. So you've got these bisons that are leaving on mass and other animals. What are you hearing about a possible eruption at Yellowstone? <laughs> Well, um, back in the 2002-2003, I was in touch with Pam Shuford on site, and uh, she was at the edges of where they would allow you to go back then, and it, she said that the steam was coming out of the earth. So there is a caldera there that is starting to become active more and more, and it's a target of terrorists, of course, because one suitcase bomb thrown into the into that tornado, the lip of that volcano anywhere in the Yellowstone could uh, wipe out America's ability to grow wheat and flour. Uh, because of the, the amount of volcanic ash in the atmosphere. It would be, totally. basically cause almost like a nuclear winter. A nuclear winter, wipe out agriculture across western and parts of – most of all western the the agricultural part of America would be wiped out. I hadn't even thought of that, uh, the, the, that, that, that a supervolcano could be used, uh, you know, in some sort of act of terrorism that you could basically, uh, you know, uh, bring about the eruption by the, by the use of a, of a suitcase bomb. But it makes sense. Yeah, be, Yellowstone Park would become our Jurassic Park if that was going to happen. That's uh, what would happen. All right, Nelson Thal here Jurassic. with uh, State PsyOps here on The Conspiracy Show. And again, uh, go to the homepage, uh, richardserrett.com, scroll down to State PsyOps, and just click in red bold letters, it says, uh, to read the full articles. Click here. That'll take you to the Twitter page, State PsyOps. Now, this is a fascinating story. Of course, we, we, we love to cover alternative health and, uh, uh, you know, uh, the question of whether there's a, a, a cure for this or that being suppressed. You've got a story here about scientists finding a treatment to kill every kind of cancer tumor. What can you tell us about that? Well, of course, um, we've always said and we've always had it passed down to us that uh, they created, the Rockefellers created the cancer industry as a um, money-making operation. And that nothing was developed that they didn't have a antidote for the board of directors. And it seems now under electric conditions, uh, everything's being flushed out in the open, like McLuhan said. And these start, things are starting to come out, the fact that there are antidotes to these. These are all manufactured diseases. And, and where are these scientists that are, that are, that are claiming to, to have found this treatment? Good question. I'm sure the article, uh, our sources make, uh, you're not going to find out. They're, they're not going to make themselves evident. You know, Richard, so many people who've developed the water generators, guys working in their backyard, there's a list, death list there of people that when they go to the patent office and license a particular machine that's a, that's a, a threatening to the oil cartel guys who control the patent office, they go out and they'll kill the guy. All right, until uh, next time. Uh, my thanks to uh, Nelson Thal, Victor Vigiani, Gary Heseltine, Tim Spreen. Uh, back next week uh, with a brand new program, and it's great to be back. And, and uh, thank you all for your ears. Good night. <laughs>